It's worth knowing what's really going on. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is Access Atlanta, your weekly look at what's fun, entertaining, and educational in and around Atlanta. I'm your host, Shane Harrison. Let's start with a couple of fun ways to spend the final week of the year. Though Christmas is this coming Saturday, many of the holiday light shows around town will continue into January. The Atlanta Botanical Gardens Garden Lights Holiday Nights runs through January 15th. Others will continue shining through January 2nd, including Stone Mountain Christmas, Six Flags Holiday in the Park, and the two World of Illumination displays, one at Six Flags Whitewater, the other at the Atlanta Motor Speedway. Head to accessatlanta.com for more info on all these shiny holiday displays. And of course, New Year's Eve is next week and concerts are planned for the night, including shows by Indigo Girls at Atlanta Symphony Hall, Widespread Panic at the Fox Theater, and Seven Dust at the Masquerade. Check the calendar and go guide or go to accessatlanta.com for more info. Stay tuned for more events later in the podcast, and after the featured conversation, we'll take a look at what the AJC is bringing you this week, both online and in print. But first, we'll talk movies. Art and film critic Felicia Feaster discusses some of the best films of the year with her son Addison, who studies film and English at college. They agree that director Paul Schrader's The Card Counter is their favorite of the year and were wowed by Joel Cohen's take on Shakespeare's classic play in the remarkable The Tragedy of Macbeth. And Felicia is here to introduce their conversation. Welcome, Felicia. Thanks for having me, Shane. Good to be with you. So uh, uh, there were a lot of great movies uh, released this year, and, um, and you and your son have talked about some of those. We're a family of big time film enthusiasts. My husband works in the film um, industry and is a filmmaker. My son studies film at school and I have been writing about film for a long time. And Addison and I just love talking about film, but we didn't even get to all of the films that we enjoyed this year. So I just wanted to run through some additional favorites, including the hilarious animated comedy about the robot apocalypse, the Mitchells versus the machines the really subtle, surreal memoria, a dreamlike look at Columbia's violent history, Jane Campion's revisionist Western, The Power of the Dog, and Spencer featuring a remarkable, sympathetic portrait of Princess Diana by Kristen Stewart. And last but not least, we wanted to make sure and give a shout out to the really rude, ridiculous comedy Bad Trip because it was actually shot 
entirely in Atlanta and is a little bit of kind of renegade fun when you compare it to all of these more highbrow films that we're talking about. We actually thought Tiffany Haddish was amazing in a comic role as an ex-con trying to recover her Pepto-Bismol pink muscle car from Eric Andre and Lil Rel. And we enjoyed watching Atlantans react to the film's really absurd hidden camera style scenarios with a mix of very Atlanta jadedness and also some sweetness. Yeah. And we all need a, a little levity and, and, you know, escapism every now and then. Exactly. It's been a hard two years. A lot of these films reflect that reality. There's a lot of isolation, a lot of melancholy to go around. But yeah, you need you need something like Brad Bad Trip to lift your spirits. Yeah. And it's nice that that now we can we can actually see a lot of these films uh, streaming now. Even, you know, movie theaters have had a rough go of it, I guess. But, uh, you know, there is something to be said for being able to see it in the comfort of your own home. Yeah, and I I think that if people feel comfortable and safe going to see, especially the tragedy of Macbeth in theaters, as well as The Power of the Dog, granted it's on Netflix right now, but both of those films really profit from the big screen treatment. Um, But yeah, there's nothing uh, to beat sitting in the comfort of your own living room without people on their iPhones and chattering. Uh, That's probably one of my favorite ways to see a movie. Right, right. And, you know, and and I guess uh, Oscar voters have been doing it that way for many years, getting getting videotapes from way back when before uh, the Oscar voting happens. And speaking of Oscar buzz, there's already been a lot for The Power of the Dog. A lot of critics groups across the country have already selected it as their top film of the year. So there's been a lot of discussion of that film as it's as possibly being a big winner at the Academy Awards as well as Flea, which um, Addison and I discussed. And that has been discussed as a possible entry for the first time ever in the documentary, the international and the animated categories of the Academy Awards. So we'll see if that happens. Um, Drive My Car is another predicted um, possible winner for the international foreign film um, at the Oscars. Awesome. Well, uh, keep an eye out for those Oscar nominations coming and uh, check out some of these great films that uh, we've talked about and some that uh, you'll hear about very soon uh, as uh, Felicia and Addison talk about some of the best films of the year. Thanks so much for bringing us this conversation, Felicia. Thanks, Shane. It was a lot of fun. I'm Felicia Feaster. If you read the AJC, you may know me as the art critic for the paper, but I'm also a film critic and member of both the Atlanta Film Critics Circle, which I co-founded, and the Southeastern Film Critics Association, two groups that just voted for our annual film awards. But today, I'm here to talk about my favorite films of the year with my favorite person of this and any year, my son Addison, who is in his second year of college studying film and English. Hey, Addison. Hey. So we're going to talk about our favorite movies of the year. And the first one I'm going to start with is The Card Counter. So we both really love this one. It is currently available to rent on Apple TV, Amazon Prime, and Google Play, among some other streaming services. The Card Counter stars Oscar Isaac. He's a military vet, William Tell, who is haunted by his involvement in Abu Ghraib and who is now a professional gambler, crisscrossing America. 
He meets a woman played by comedian Tiffany Haddish and begins a very tender, sweet relationship with her. Haddish is Lalinda, who represents wealthy investors and offers to financially back Tell so he can start winning bigger. But it becomes clearer as the film goes on that winning isn't the point for Tell, who is more interested in operating under the radar and sort of kind trying to come to terms with what he did at Abu Ghraib. So the card counter is directed by Paul Schrader, who, as a writer and a director, has often focused on solitary, haunted characters like Willem Dafoe, if you've seen Light Sleeper, or Robert De Niro in Taxi Driver or in Raging Bull. And the card counter is really more of the same. Oscar Isaac gives a really incredible slow burn performance, playing someone who makes his living outfoxing and reading other people around the poker or the blackjack table, but doesn't seem able to contend with the things that have happened to him in the past. So I will say the film is very slow to unfold and to reveal what's going on with its characters, but it's so rich and packed with such atmospheric detail that it feels like it kind of resets your heart rate and forces you to go along with its rhythms in a really satisfying way. And of course, there have been a lot of films about professional gamblers, from The Hustler to The Color of Money, but I really feel like The Card Counter presents a truth about this grim, soulless landscape of professional gambling that feels as real as the sordid Times Square that we saw in Taxi Driver. It's a pretty ugly world of strip malls and cheap motels that echoes the soullessness of Tell's experiences in Iraq, which are genuinely shocking in the way Schrader shoots them using a 360-degree VR camera. Like Schrader's previous film, First Reformed, which addressed climate change, The Card Counter is also a morality story about what we tolerate and excuse as a nation, like the torture that happened at Abu Ghraib. So I have to ask Addison, what made you put this film on your top lists of uh, 2021 great films? Um, well, I agree with what a lot of what you said. And I would just add that um, while Oscar Isaac is certainly the face of the card counter and he gives a really wonderful performance, I think what stood out to me in particular was the performances by the supporting cast. Um, like you said, Tiffany Haddish, uh, Willem Dafoe, and also Ty Sheridan all really excel at balancing um, the stoic nature of Isaac's character. And they, all three of them are able to both add and also cut the tension of the film. Um, I think that Haddish really brings a almost motherly nature. She's, she's very nurturing and kind to, to Isaac's character who's so haunted by his past, um, and she, in some ways, able to help guide him through this this tormented state that he's in. But also, Willem Dafoe's character serves as a reminder of his dark past. Um, and so I think they really work well uh, with Isaac's performance. Um, and I also found that the mood and the style of the card counter is very similar to many of Schrader's films. It has this very cold, detached feeling. Um, and I was just thinking when I was watching it and afterwards that 
Over the last two years, we've grown accustomed to social distancing and isolation. And I think that that sense of separation really permeates the card counter. Um, There's so many scenes that are sparsely decorated with only a, a few characters in these massive casino halls. I think it, it really works to the film's favor that it, because we've been living in this environment um, over the last two years, we are more able to accept this kind of isolated world. Um, and I think that's probably, to me at least, the most powerful element of the card counter. Yeah, I totally agree. I really do relate to that sense of isolation. And as you say, it probably is because we've all just gone through COVID. And I really like what you said about Tiffany Haddish, because it hadn't occurred to me. She's kind of the only woman in this world of men, of of card players. And she's this sort of softening influence who gives the film a fair amount of heart because all the characters are pretty internal and keep things you know, close to the vest. So, yeah, I think that's important to note. So what's the next film? Yeah, in a similarly kind of isolated uh, environment, the next film um, on our list is The Lost Daughter. Um, This is the directorial debut feature for actress Maggie Gyllenhaal. Um, It's about this comparative literature professor named Lita Caruso, who's played by Academy Award winner Olivia Colman. Um, And she's vacationing off of the coast of Greece when she develops this at first seemingly innocuous relationship Um, with another tourist, Nina, played by Dakota Johnson. But this relationship quickly spirals into a larger story of obsession that's haunted by Leda's past. Um, It's like the card counter, a very um, sparse, spare, almost minimalist film, but there's so much emotion boiling under the surface And I think that that's really brought out both through Coleman and Johnson's performances. Um, But I think that a lot of credit should go to uh, Gyllenhaal's direction and the um, adaptation of this uh, Elena Ferrante novel that it's based on. Um, At first, I found myself not disliking, but I, I, I found that the cinematography of the film is very cold. Most of it's shot in these... Um, whites and blues uh, reminiscent of the coast of Greece but there is this this kind of dissonant feeling um, from the cinematography but I I think over time that really works in the film's favor because you grow to understand more and more about Leda's past and you essentially adopt her outlook on the world and her her vision of this this coast. Um, And so in that way, I found the film really mesmerizing. Um, And I'm interested to know, uh, why did you also include um, The Lost Daughter on your list? Well, I was actually super impressed that this was a first film, um, because it was so accomplished, and the tone was so balanced and expert. It just felt like something from a longtime director. I think the thing, though, that I loved the most about the film was how complex and really nuanced the female characters are. It's a really, I think it's probably partly due to these strong actresses are in, who are in the film, but also a credit to Maggie Gyllenhaal. It's a really insightful read into what it feels like to occupy, in Olivia Coleman's case, an older woman's skin, and she's alone, she's 
on vacation, unprotected by a man. And so she gets a lot of kind of casual rage directed at her. And, you know, as a woman who's traveled alone myself, I totally see that sense of vulnerability in her and relate to it because, you you know, you don't have anyone to rely on. You're kind of on your own and people can take advantage of that. And then on the other side of things is, you know, this beautiful younger woman played by Dakota Johnson, who's trying to raise her daughter. Um, it's a kind of a difficult um, journey. The daughter seems hard to settle down. And she gets a lot of instruction on how to be a mother um, from other women and gets a lot of attention for her looks from young men. So I just thought that was such a, a great expression of of just the ordinary insults and ordinary stresses that women go through over the course of their lives from when they're young to when they get older. And the next film that I wanted to talk about um, is Flee, and that's F-L-E-E, as in run, rather than F-L-E-A. Um, we're actually waiting to find out when this is going to be released in uh, Atlanta sometime in 2022. I will mention The Lost Daughter is going to be in theaters on December 31st. So Flea is a um, film. Actually, sorry. Uh, Lost Daughter is in theaters now. It will be on Netflix December 31st. Um, but oh my gosh. Lost Daughter is in Atlanta in theaters right now. Thank you, Addison. I appreciate that correction. This is one case where you can correct your mother. It's perfectly fine. So Flea is, um, it's an animated film, but it's also a documentary. So it really kind of plays with our expectations of what those two film genres are all about. And it tells the true story of an Afghan refugee named Amin, who is living in Denmark. And he's doing, when the film starts, he starts a kind of film hypnosis. He goes back in time to a very traumatic moment in his life. So he recounts um, to his friend, who is also the film's Danish director, Jonas Rasmussen, his experiences growing up in Afghanistan, in Afghanistan and then its descent into war and terror um, during the civil war in Afghanistan of the 1980s. That war eventually forces Amin and his family to flee, and they end up in Russia, which is one of the most grim portraits of this country I've ever seen. Russia can be pretty grim in terms of film, but here it's just a really kind of dark, disturbing place as seen through the eyes of Amin and his family. It's a place where the Russian police are really just as cruel and exploitive as the human traffickers who have smuggled Amin and his family into the country. Um, it's it's pretty it's pretty profound. And then one complicating factor to you know this already traumatic journey that Amin is making with his family out of Af Afghanistan is the fact that Amin is also gay. And that really makes his transition first to Russia and then to Denmark even more difficult. So the film, I think, really helps you understand the sense, even once you do find a home as a refugee, of that eternal rootlessness 
and the kind of perpetual distrust that you have um, because of all that you've witnessed in your journey from your home to a new a new way of life. And Flea really powerfully renders the almost endless limbo that refugees can sometimes have, a lifetime, that feeling that they can't shake of waiting and of trying to establish roots and find a home and have some semblance of security. It's I can't recommend this film enough. It's just really incredible. What did you think, Addison? Um, I completely agree with everything you've said. And I would just um, add, after I saw it, I was thinking about two films in particular um, that reminded me of Flea. Uh, I was thinking of Persepolis and Waltz with Bashir. Um, and it's interesting that Flea marks this third entry in what's kind of an informal trilogy of um, animated films about uh personal experiences of the chaos that the Middle East has seen um, over the last several decades now. And I think it's interesting because in some way these films all work to show what's going on in a very different way because the events of Flea in a much larger sense have, have been televised for years now. Um, you know, news media has gotten you know extremely good at reporting on the particular large impact situations of conflict within the middle east but often the human element is completely left out um and i think after everything that we've seen go on in afghanistan in the last year that understanding and reckoning with the human cost of these conflicts um, is more important than ever. And I think that that's something that the animation of Flea really allows. Um, the animation is both really beautiful at times, but also amazing at presenting such a stark landscape, uh, particularly, like you said, the, the environment of Russia um, and the kind of massive cold apartment complexes that uh, the family lives in in Flea because of this otherwise charming animation style it, it almost adds to the to the bleakness and sadness of the environment um, and I thought that Flea was a really beautiful film because it it was not set on existing within only one emotion it's as much as we talk about the the plight of the main characters of Flea, it's not a sad film. It's it's happy and it's contemplative. It's a really mixed film emotionally, but it's also a great distillation of life. Um, and I think it's easily one of the best films of the year. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned that part too about... Um that we know the Middle East, we know about what's going on through the news, because one thing I didn't mention is Flea really toggles between Amin recounting his experiences, his personal travails, and the director intercuts actual footage from Afghanistan, um, basically weaves in newsreel images to give that sense of the reality of this place that we know through the media then counterbalanced by 
a means experience. Let's take a short break and look at more events in and around Atlanta. In Terminus Modern Ballet Theater's Marley Was Dead to begin with, a riveting morality dance film based on Dickens' A Christmas Carol, the central, most complex, and most interesting character is not Scrooge, but Miss Marley. Yes, this version of the character is a woman, and like Scrooge's dead business partner, Jacob Marley, in the novel, she is a ghost. A fierce, funny, jealous, conflicted, tormented, and pushy ghost. And that's just for starters. Terminus performed Marley Was Dead live for the first time on December 10, 2021, at the Kennesaw State University Dance Theater. For those who missed it, the film version can be viewed online through January 4th. Read more about that in a story from our partners at Arts ATL on accessatlanta.com. Really Free, The Radical Art of Nellie Mae Rowe is in its final weeks at the High Museum of Art. The visionary artist, born on a farm in Fayetteville on July 4, 1900, lived in Vinings for many years. Her yard decorated with handmade dolls and chewing gum sculptures and beads and wigs hanging from trees. The show includes about 60 pieces by Rowe, including works on paper, sculptures, and dolls, along with photos of her work and life. Find out more on accessatlanta.com about this show, which will close on January 9th. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's continue our look at some of the best films of 2021. And the next film uh, we're going to talk about is Drive My Car. Um, This will be playing at the Plaza Theater in Atlanta starting on January 14th. Um, It's a Japanese film directed by Ryusuke Hamaguchi. um, And it was adapted from a short story of the same name by Haruki Murakami. Uh, And the story and the film... uh, are about the life of Yusuke Kafuku, um, who is a theater director who, after suffering this massive personal tragedy, um, is attempting to stage Chekhov's Uncle Vanya. Um, And really, this film can be seen uh, in line with Hamaguchi's previous work. Uh, It is a quiet and subtle film, um, but it's one that grows very slowly to a really brilliant emotional crescendo. Um, It's also very in line with the work of Murakami. Um, It was originally adapted from a story within this collection, uh, Men Without Women. And in typical Murakami fashion, it deals with a man out of place in the world searching for any kind of human connection. Um, And I think it's really interesting to note that right now we seem to be in somewhat of a Murakami renaissance in terms of adaptations. Uh, Over the last decade, we've seen both Norwegian Wood, his famous novel, get adapted into a film. And also another short story of his uh, was adapted into the 2018 film Burning, which starred Steven Yeun. Um, And I just think that Drive My Car 
is a really amazing continuation of Murakami's work on screen. Um, the performances are all incredible and uh, the film works really well at uh, adapting a pretty short um, literary work into this epic emotional journey. Um, and yeah, I, I'm interested in hearing uh, what aspects stuck out to you the most about uh, Drive My Car. Well, you know, it's funny. It's not until you start looking back at the films that you've really loved over the course of the year that you realize there's a lot of connection between them. You think of The Card Counter and also The Power of the Dog, which I'll talk about a little bit later, and Drive My Car. They're all very much kind of slow burn pictures that you really have to settle into and spend some time with the characters and really let the story unfold at a very leisurely pace. So you really have to surrender yourself to what the director is trying to achieve and what the actors are doing. But I like that. I like film for for taking you to that place. And to me, Drive My Car, I thought it made me feel like I was watching a musical without music. Because in musicals, characters are always expressing their feelings in song. But here they express it themselves through storytelling, yeah, well, um, one thing I would add to that is that uh, in typical Murakami fashion, uh, the movie does incorporate some music, um, both through the allusion to the Beatles song Drive My Car, but also um, there's classical music throughout the film uh, that I think works in a very abstract way to convey a lot of the pent-up emotions of the main characters. Absolutely. Yeah, because the characters, you know, a lot of the action takes place inside a car. It's almost like a confessional where people kind of offer up these hidden secrets and reveal aspects of their inner lives. You know, they really tell their personal stories, much in the way you see in a musical. But they also express themselves as actors through the words of the Russian playwright Anton Chekhov. So it's about story. Drive My Car is about storytelling on so many levels and how, you know, both a fictional work like Uncle Vanya can say a lot about our, you know, intimate private lives. And I think that makes it really powerful. Yeah. And interestingly, actually, the director, Hamaguchi, um, will have two films released in 2021. Uh, there's no word on when it will reach Atlanta, um, but he does have another film coming out this year or early next year. Um, which is called Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. So if you've already seen Drive My Car, don't worry, you've already got another one to see. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that one as well. Okay, so Addison and I were both big fans of The Tragedy of Macbeth, and it is going to have a limited theatrical release um, on Christmas Day, and then it will be on Apple TV January 14th. So I really recommend you seek this one out. Obviously, Macbeth, it's a story that's been told thousands of times in thousands of different ways. So how do you make it new? You know, how do you adapt it for the screen and use elements of cinema to tell this story in a better, more interesting or different way? 
Denzel Washington stars um, in the film. It's obviously adapted from the timeless William Shakespeare play, and it's about power and its corruptive influence on Macbeth. The Tragedy of Macbeth is directed by Joel Cohen, who has made Fargo and No Country for Old Men, and he is actually directing his wife, Frances McDormand, who actually, I, I love her as an actress, but in this film, she is truly unnerving, a little bit frightening. She is a very calculating and aspirational Lady Macbeth who basically convinces her husband um, to kill someone. So it's a challenge, as I said, um, to make something fresh and new with something that has been around, a play that has been around with us so long. And Joel Cohen is up to it. I mean, he's up to the challenge. This is a super stylish film. It's a combination of really beautiful cinematic technique, like really extreme close-ups, and some of the most incredible black and white cinematography I've I've seen in the past 10 years by Bruno Delbanel. Um, so those extreme close-ups really make you feel like we're kind of boring into the heart of these characters. And the special effects, also another cinematic touch that, you know, you can't achieve um, on a on a stage in the theater, like a witch who transforms into a raven or actor Alex Hassel, who has this unbelievably expressive face, who plays Ross and changes allegiance throughout the story. Those kinds of images linger long after the film is over. Um, this film really, really stayed with me after after I saw it. And one last thing I'll say um, before Addison weighs in is the set design for this film is remarkable. It's modernist. It's very theatrical, very stylized and strange. And it only highlights, because of those things, the timelessness and the gravity of this story of Macbeth, a person who is driven to madness and violence. But the tragedy of Macbeth also, despite, as I said, feeling very filmic, feels like a theatrical event. It reminded me a lot of certain Orson Welles productions, the films that he made in the 1940s that often had that similar theatrical vibe. Um the tragedy of Macbeth is shot on a soundstage. So it's very heightened, you know, unrealistic, and it can feel um, very much like a Hollywood or, or an art house film from the past by Orson Welles, or it reminded me a lot of Ingmar Bergman and films like the German classic, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. It's just an exceptionally beautiful and really, truly spooky film. Yeah, um, I also agree that the performances really stuck out with me. Uh, I think that uh, Frances McDormand really showed um, an ability to change what we have come to expect of her her recent uh, output. Um, this is a dramatically different role than her performance last year in Nomadland, um, and I think only... Uh, highlights how talented she is as an actress. Um, another performance that I would like to shout out is Corey Hawkins, who plays Macduff. Um, I thought that it was an amazing supporting role um, that really contrasted well with uh, Denzel Washington's performance. Um, and I agree that the 
the sets and the design of the film gave this theatrical element it it, it kind of leaned into the artifice of theater um but it still was able to be a really engaging work um and has this almost alien quality in some ways um and i think it's a mark of a really talented director that it can both be reminiscent of the films of Orson Welles and Ingmar Bergman and Akira Kurosawa, but still maintain this unique vision and quality and not seem derivative. Um, and that way, I, I thought it was most impressive to me. Um, and I thought it was a really wonderful film. Um, and the next film we have is uh, Petite Maman, which is the uh, follow-up to um, Portrait of the Lady on Fire, directed by Celine Sciamma. Um, and Petite Maman is a, it, it first is a realistic portrayal of grief between a mother and daughter. Um, but in a very sly way, the film quickly shifts into this intergenerational fantastic narrative as only could be imagined by a child. Um, there's a very childlike quality to the film um, without sacrificing the adult themes of grief and loss. Um, and Shama creates this incredibly delightful film that's both charming and um, and a little harrowing in equal measure. And I think the film is is easily one of the most engaging uh, foreign films of the year and is definitely one of the uh, foreign films in 2021 that I think could reach a, a much wider audience than foreign films typically do. Um, and it's also probably the shortest film that you might see this year. Um, it's only about 72 minutes, uh, which I found really impressive that Shyama could create such a um, kind of large emotional impact in the viewer and do that in such a short amount of time. Um, I was really impressed by this film. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that about it's very accessible. I think sometimes people see that something's, you know, a French film made by a director they haven't heard of and get a little intimidated. But this film is very easy to sink into, really, really enjoyable. And I think people will find tremendous connection and to the characters. For me, the film was just such an unbelievable immersion in the powerful sensations of being a child. It really took me back to those feelings and these really fierce bonds that children form um, and the absolute pleasure of the things you did as a kid, things like building forts in the woods or play acting, which is something the two little girl characters do in a very sophisticated French way. Um, but they do that um, as part of their connection throughout the film and Shyama just renders that with such accuracy and such feeling. It's such a warm, loving film. And it's really, it's about relationships, ultimately. It's about this little girl, Nellie, who is the center of the story, who's played by Josephine Sands. And she has this incredibly sweet, devoted relationship to her grandmother, 
who dies when the film opens. And so now Nellie is kind of turning that heartbreak and that love towards her little friend, Marianne, who's played by the actress's twin sister, Gabrielle Sands. And that becomes their relationship becomes almost like a healing balm um, to help Nellie contend with the death of her grandmother. It's just about the ebb and flow of relationships and the loss, but also the pleasure of, of finding new people to love. So this has been Felicia Feaster and my son Addison. We've been talking about our favorite films of 2021. Just to recap, those films are The Card Counter, The Lost Daughter, Flea, Drive My Car, The Tragedy of Macbeth, and Petite Maman. So some of them you can see now. Some of them you'll have to, you know, write a refrigerator, post-it note, tack that up, and look for them to come in 2022 all highly recommended. Addison, thanks for taking some time to have an in-depth film chat with your mother. Thank you. The AJC brings you the best of what's happening in and around Atlanta on accessatlanta.com. Here's a taste of what you'll find there. While huge parties and fancy galas have been the age-old tradition, the multi-year pandemic has taught us that there are many ways to revamp a custom. We have a look at some alternative, yet equally festive options to ring in the new year around Metro Atlanta, including a cozy staycation getaway. Check out that story on AJC.com and AccessAtlanta.com. As of December 21st, the International Rescue Committee in Atlanta has welcomed more than 500 Afghan evacuees to Metro Atlanta, and roughly 300 more people are expected to arrive by the end of February. The Cobble Market located at 2129 Lawrenceville Highway in Decatur, could provide a taste of home to those Afghan refugees who've recently settled in Georgia. It's the only Afghan grocery in the state. Read our story on this enterprising small business and its origins on AJC.com. For more things to do in and around Atlanta, go to accessatlanta.com. The podcast is edited by Tyson A. Horn. The theme music is by Bo Emerson and Billy Gewen. And I'm your host and the AJC's arts and entertainment editor, Shane Harrison. Join us next week for more Access Atlanta. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.